Oh, I'm super thankful for you, Johnny, for bringing the word and just addressing a hard topic and doing it with boldness um, is, is difficult in, in, this, in this culture, so I appreciate that a lot. Uh, my name is Joel Lapierre. I'm the high school director, by the way, and, and this is Eric Burns, our lead pastor at LBC. So, uh, but we're excited to be up here and to, um, to address these questions. There are a lot of great questions um, and so we're going to spend the next, you know, hopefully hour and a half getting to all of them, hopefully. Um, there's a lot, so we might not be able to get to all of them, but we'll do our best. So, um, and kind of the, the first question is even a personal one for me. I, you know, I have actually within my family, I had a, um, a, a cousin of mine who um, was dating a man who transitioned to a woman. And, and it was an incredibly hard thing for my family to navigate and I, I had no answers for this. And so I, I'm, I think I have better answers now, but this is a great question. And I think one that I, you know, just as I'm talking with a lot of the students, they're all kind of asking the same question. But I think this is coming from a teacher. Um, this person says, I'm a teacher at a public high school and have students who are transgender and request to be called by a different name and pronoun. I'm interested. Um, how we might be faithful in this context? What are some parameters to consider in our response you know, I think a part of that, too, is, like, I think, what, should we use their pronoun, their preferred pronouns? How should we address that in a loving way that's also in truth? Um, how would you go about that? Um, I think the pronoun conversation is definitely, like, worthy of consideration. I think the answer in a lot of these things is going to be fairly simple, and I think there's probably different rebuttals that could be thrown out, but... I think because the Bible's so clear and because I believe it's fairly black and white, the answers are probably going to feel more concise than um, they should be at times, and I don't want to extrapolate unnecessarily just for the sake of making it feel like a longer argument. So with that in mind, sex is a biological reality designed by God. And so when you tell someone and call them by the preferred pronouns, you're lying to them, you're dishonoring God, and you're perpetuating something that is divorced from reality to make them feel comfortable in the decision that they've made. So that's going to be difficult from a teacher's perspective, and that's where I would say, like, you can use their name, but when someone says, I use they, them pronouns because I'm fluid and the, I, I don't have, you know, I don't know what sex I want to use, or I use um, he, her pronouns, or her, him, you know, it's funny because now there's so many of them. I mean, Facebook gives you 58 options to choose from for your own gender. So now you're going to have to jump through the hula hoops and gymnastics of trying to figure that out. I just say, hey, where it becomes a, it's one thing to refer to someone by the change of their name even. Let's say there's a, last year at camp, uh, there was a, a guy that was transitioning to become a girl. His name was Nick the year before, and he came up as Nikki. Uh, names are a social construct, um, meaning that you can have a guy that, whose name is Carrie and a girl whose name is Carrie. There's a, my mom, I remember my mom had a miscarriage when I was seven, and she didn't know the, the gender of the baby. And so we grew up saying that we had seven siblings, and we had uh, Jesse as well, because it was a name that could refer to either sex. And I remember always going like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. You know? But when it comes to sex, that's, that's given by God. It's designed by God. So you're in violation of God's design, and it's unloving to someone else. It might feel loving to accommodate them, but when you accommodate someone in their sin... You are not loving them, and, and that's going to be tough in the world that we live in. And, and frankly, it's like, well, what about my job? I think that's where Christians are really going to have to take a stand in the coming years. I mean, we're going into a completely different environment in a different world, and that's been 
live before us. So Christians are going to have to take a stand, and if they just get run over by the world, and that's, then that might be the reality of it, because churches are going to be persecuted, jobs are going to be persecuted. Um, we're facing different types of persecution, obviously, than the underground church in China. Your life might not be at stake right now, but your job very well may be. And I think that referring to someone in pronouns that is disassociated from the pronouns that God gave them when he hardwired them in the womb is dishonoring to God and unloving to the individual. Pastor Eric, any thoughts? No, I would agree with Johnny. I think what, uh, don't miss this, he, he's not saying it's easy um, and that it wouldn't be hard. Um, but I don't think, in my opinion, there's anything offensive about calling someone by their name. Um, I don't see why you have to be um, put in a box on he, she, they, and just their given name. So if you're a teacher, you have a roll sheet. There's a name on the roll sheet. You call them by the name on the sheet. Um, that's the name that was given. That's the name presented. That's the name you call them by. Um, and so that sounds simple, and that's kind of what Johnny was alluding to. Um, but it really is that, that simple. You don't need to call them by a pronoun. Um, and I would agree, it doesn't correspond with reality. It, you know, and that's, for a Christian, that's going against God's design. That's, that's lying. It's perpetuating something that's untrue. Um, and it gives the idea that you're condoning it. Um, and if you were asked why you wouldn't, you'd say, well, I, I don't agree. That's not how God set it up. But I'll call you by your name. You know, you have a given name. You go by, and I'll call you by that name. Um, so, for someone to argue that it's unloving to call them by their birth name, I think is a it's a hard argument to make. Someone might make it, um, but I don't think that's unloving. Um, I think I would agree with Johnny. The unloving thing is to perpetuate the lie that their pronoun goes against reality, and that's actually the unloving act. So, I think Johnny did a great job. That's all I would add. Yeah. Great. Next question, uh, how do you encourage the balance of life for high school, college students between the Christian bubble and building relationships with people of other lifestyles so that they may see Christ through us? Yeah, I, I think it's probably an answer for parents probably as well because the, the role is to protect your child from the world, not insulate them from the world. And so, you know, I, I've kind of been like hot and heavy on this, like one idea lately, like I keep on hearing discipleship starts in the home, discipleship starts in the home. Like the role of parents is to disciple their students, their kids. And that is in total alignment with biblical reality. Discipleship does start in the home. Every single mom and dad, their chief responsibility is to each other and then to their kids to disciple them. With that being said, if discipleship stays in the home, it's not discipleship. There is no such thing as a disciple that isn't a disciple maker. So if your students are growing up in an environment where you have no relationships with an unbeliever, you're living a life that is completely divorced from the New Testament model. And so to say that we're just going to holy huddle and watch as the world dies is uh, antithetical to Scripture and it's antithetical to someone that's received the love of God. That's Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. That says, the love of Christ compels me. He says, if you think I'm out of my mind for living this way, I'm out of my mind because I can't believe that Jesus has demonstrated his love towards me. And because I've received this love and the Holy Spirit has poured it out into my heart through the Holy Spirit in Romans 5, I am compelled by that love I've received to share that love with other people. It is a tragedy, an absolute tragedy. Even yesterday I saw something that just didn't sit well with me. It was just this idea that Christians are going to hide behind the wall of each other until God either returns or raptures his church. 
and we're just watching the world die. And the only way that we're going to change the world is by producing godly offspring. Meaning that like that's our contribution. The way that the church operates is first of all through the internal maturation of the saints. That just means the maturing of the saints. That's Galatians 4. That Christ would be formed in you. That's the goal. If you're in a church, do you know what the goal is? The goal is that Christ would be formed in you. It's the same verb for someone that's pregnant, that a baby's being formed within her. That's the goal for every believer in a church. But there's also the external mission of the church that you were saved so that you might shine. That he saved you, he called you out of darkness into his mar marvelous light so that you might shine it to the rest of the world so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who saved you. So as far as how, what's the balance, I don't like the word balance. There is no balance. You're supposed to live an obedient life. Sometimes the word balance is tough because it feels like a compromise on one side or the other. So I try as much as possible not to use the word balance because it feels like you're trying to choose between two realities and for the christian they're to live biblically not to live balanced in the sense of how do i live as much like i want to but still justify and pacify that i'm living like a christian so and obviously balance is not a bad word i think it's appropriate at times but i would say listen your responsibility if you're a christian there's only one thing in heaven that's good that you're not going to be able to do there that you can do right now what is it tell a lost sinner they can be reconciled to a holy god everything that you're going to experience in heaven is far better and optimized. Every food will be better, the fellowship will be better, the music will be better, it's gonna be awesome. <laughs> There's only one good thing that you can do on planet Earth that you will not be able to do for the next 10 billion years. And it's tell a lost sinner that Jesus Christ died and demonstrated his love for them and the wrath of God was fully poured out and the wrath of God was satisfied as proved by the resurrection and you can have peace with God in a peaceless world and you can have a peace that surpasses all understanding and this is why God left you here. You have been left here for one fundamental reason. That's why when the word balance is used, and I'm not picking on the word, but I am, I hate it because you have one job. I have one job, and it's to plead with sinners to be reconciled to God. And raising godly offspring is a part of that because we're multiplying the forces of our ambassadorship to shine brightly the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're in a home, if you're a parent, I mean, this is, even I remember being 18 and really struggling with this because I'm reading my Bible and this changed even in my parents. I just went to my parents and went, I can't remember the last time we've ever had an unbeliever over for dinner. How can you, how, you would stone me if I said there wasn't a literal hell. Would, I mean, like in my environment at the Master's University, I, I mean, I push back on them. Because if I set up and got, I, you know, and said there is no literal hell, I'd be fired. I'd be like, yes, compromiser. But then do we live like that? Do we live like that's the reality? Do you, li do you know your neighbor's names? I mean, I, I just sometimes I, I struggle with that because... Um, we can preach a six-part sermon series on the reality of a fiery hell and so many people just kind of go, well, God's sovereign. He's going to save me. He's going to save No, how will they know without a preacher? Romans 10 doesn't just apply to the children in Africa. It applies to the people that live in Bakersfield. And you are the ambassador that's been given to them from God. You have a job. I have a job. So I don't use the word balance. I'm all chips in. Um, that's why I like C.T. Studd says, he said, I'd, la I'd rather live within an inch of hell than live within an inch where the church, you know, where the sound of the church bell, meaning that I, I live, I live as close as my life to the gates of hell to just testify and tell people that they can be saved from their sin, from God's wrath and be brought together in, in a great relationship with God. So the balance is, um, irrelevant 
I want to live my life as obediently as possible to Jesus Christ. And that looks like I'm all chips in for the lost and for the glory of God. And the church in that sense should look, should feel like an incubator center where that the churches grow stale. This is what happened at the church of Ephesus, right? You've left, you don't want me like you used to. Well, what defined Ephesus at first? Well, the church of Ephesus in Acts was defined by gospel evangelistic zeal. And then over time, and this is what's happening right now, churches are hunkering down. Let's preach the truth. Let's preach the truth, which is good. But if truth doesn't fuel evangelism, it's stale orthodoxy, and God is just against that as he is air. You're against me. I'm against you. Because if you just love the truth as a means to the end, their truth is not the end. It's a means to the end. And the, the end is worship, and the end is proclaiming the truth to those who don't know it. Obviously, it's, a, it's something I care about. <laughs> yeah, no, I think Johnny did a great job with that. I'm going to maybe more answer this from a parent perspective. And so I think kind of what the question is, um, how, do you, how do you get your kid um, through this crazy life? And I think you've got to know your kid. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. Um, if you put one kid in a Christian school, they might rebel. You put your other kid in there, they might thrive. So I think you kind of have to know your kid in what situations they are. I think one myth is that you can't control their friends. You can. You can say, no, you're not hanging out with them, right? But at the same time, um, to Johnny's point, do they have any non-Christian friends? That's a really good question. And there's a difference between your one kid being amongst, you know, 20 non-Christians and they're trying to fight that by themselves versus having friends where they're interacting with who don't know Jesus. And here would be my encouragement to you is to help them figure this out now. Don't put them in a bubble and then send them off to college when they've never dealt with someone who doesn't know Jesus, has objections, and has passions that go outside of Christ, and there's no parent to help. They're all on their own, and they're trying to figure this out. Um, when you put them so far in the bubble and you send them off to college, I mean, I went to school with these kids. They went nuts. And that's at a Christian school because they've never had freedom. They've never had choice. They've never uh, had the option to do contrary to what their parents said. And so I think there's a huge part of teaching kids how to make decisions, how to be godly, how to share the gospel, how to, okay, you went too far. How do you correct that? Um, How do you present a Christian witness? Why aren't you being honest with your Christian friends? Why are you acting like your non-Christian friends? And help them engage in non-Christian settings um, as much as to be a witness. I, I agree wholeheartedly with Johnny is that we're called to be a light and it, that the equivalency to me has always been taking a flashlight and working it during the day. It's useless, right? Flashlights go in dark places. Does that make sense? And so we need to be in dark places um, that's why there's, there's a plethora of opportunities, you know, uh, if you're homeschooled, I get it, but look for opportunities to plug your kids in, whether it's sports or activities, something where they're meeting non-Christians and they understand um, there, there's, it's not just a holy huddle, as Johnny said, is that they're to proclaim their faith to lost people because they love Jesus and they love that person and they want that person to know Jesus. I think one of the most beautiful things Johnny said yesterday was that if you divorce a love for the lost, you're missing all of what's happening. Um, It's not about being right. It's about God made a design, and we love God, and we want to uphold His design, and we care about people that it hurts them when they don't uphold God's design. And the loving thing to do is to show them, you know, God has a better way. 
God just doesn't say no and he's the anti-fun God. God's ways are better. And the loving thing to do is to tell people, no, what God has for you is far better um, temporarily and eternally. Um, heaven is better than hell. Having Jesus is better than not having Jesus currently. And, and so teaching your kid how to interact in those contexts, I think, is so important. Um, and we do a disservice of our children when we send them away and they've never been able to interact with non-Christians. They've never had hard conversations with teachers who don't love Jesus, who, you know, they've, they've never interacted in that way. And I'm not doing a one-size-fits-all. I'm just kind of building on what Johnny said. You have to navigate that with your kid. You know, are, are they strong enough to be in that friendship? You know, are they being led astray and putting them in? And, and when do you do that? And how much rope do you give them? Um, I'm not saying you just throw them to the wolves, but we need to allow them to interact with the wolves so they know how to be strong and present the truth and give them doses so that they can be, as Colossians 1 says, presented mature in Christ, that they're not tossed by the waves to and fro every time they hear something crazy. They've been able to stand and think and act according to the Word of God the way they've been raised, and rather than crumble because they've never interacted with a non-Christian um, that they actually have a heart for that person because their maturity tells them that person needs Jesus. And I care about them knowing Jesus. That's a part of their maturity. Um, so to build on that, I think you have to have that interaction. And the church can't be afraid of it. It has to have a, actually, like what Johnny is saying, have a heart for those people. That we would do everything we can to reach them, um, but also not become like them. I think that's maybe the, the balance, for lack of a better word. <laughs> Yeah, you can't use that anymore. I, okay. I think just one thing to say on that with, uh, let's say, like, hypothetically, it's a decision between public school and homeschool, you know, like, which I think is a, a fair question or private school. If you use the example of Daniel, he goes into Babylon, he's 14 years old, right? He goes into one of the most pagan societies and cultures the world has ever known. He's not like some jacked, vascular adult male. He's 14. Daniel survives in that culture, and it's rooted not just in the reality that he had been separated from it when he grew up. I think a lot of that, so let's say you're going to put your kid in Babylon, and he's going to go to a public school where they're going to have sex ed classes and all this. Long story short, it's not going to work for moms and dads to say, how was your day anymore? And so where discipleship matters in the home is that I think in general, Christian parents not, this is not a blanket statement, Christian parents have been able to get off by asking general questions and getting general answers. A whole new level of intentionality and specificity is required for any sort of student to survive in this. They're not there to get an education. They are there at school now to get indoctrinated. And if all you do is ask them how their day is, good luck. So I think that as far as how you navigate it, you pursue it biblically, and this is where R.C. Sproul used to say, every Christian is a theologian. And if you're just banking on one hour of church on Sundays and youth group on Wednesdays, and then maybe a book club once a week with some dudes to kind of justify or enable you to get through this world, I just think that, hey, you have to gear up. We're all going to have to gear up because we're in a different environment, and every single one of you who claims to know Christ needs to double down on, I need to know the truth backwards and forwards. I need to know how to defend it with gentleness and respect 
and I need to double down on my intentionality with my kids because even if they're at a different school, they're also seeing the same things likely on TikTok or Instagram. I got shown pornography for the first time in my life when I was in ninth grade at my Christian school. I told my parents about it seven years later. Um, I just, no one would have asked me, hey, how was your day, John? Good, have you seen anything you shouldn't be seeing? No, Dad, I'm fine. But ninth grade in the parking lot, someone showed me my Christian friend who's an, an elder's kid at my, at my church, uh, showed me pornography for the first time on an iPod touch because he had hooked up to the school Wi-Fi. I just think that, and then so for a parent to say, hey, you're being pure, I just think everything that you do needs to be doubled down with intentionality and uh, trusting your kid should only go, and, and, I, I, and I, you obviously are, are teenagers, but the most loving thing your parent can do is to trust you only so far. <laughs> because, because you're good liars, and you know what? I'm, I was a good liar. Um, and so the most unloving kind of interaction, I think, at times, and unintentional, is just ask vague questions that get vague answers. So as far as how you navigate that, parents need to be very specific and very intentional, knowing that you have to dig deep to really know what's going on. Awesome. That was very helpful. Next question is, uh, what is the best way to confront your own brother on him being gay and married, but still show him you love him? Yeah, love is never the preventative from sharing the truth. It's always the catalyst or the fuel for why you would share something that's true. So... As far as like, you tell them the truth because it's out of love. So you don't you don't communicate with people to theologically slam them. You communicate with people out of a burden, and that should be obvious in the tone that you communicate with. So hypothetically, if I have a brother that's gay, um, I telling you this because I love you and I have firm convictions in these realities. And I think there's obviously a difference too. Like if someone claims to be a believer or doesn't claim to be a believer, that's going to be different. If it's a Christian. There's, uh, we were talking about this in the back, First Corinthians says that we don't associate with people that live in habitual sin that continue to maintain that they're a Christian. That's an abomination to God. And we're allowing them to, have, to grow in their confidence in their lifestyle by associating and referencing them as a Christian when they're living in habitual sin. That would be the same thing for a man living in adultery. You would just say, no, we're, this, is, this is wrong. Or a guy addicted to pornography or whatever it might be. So I think the way that you come across in love is to say, hey, here's what the Bible says. I think also too many people are, uh, make the assumption that people know where they stand on something. Um, and so I would, very, I would be very cautious of that to be like, well, they know where I stand. They know that I'm a Christian. They know I go to church. You're living in a world where people make assumptions that you accept them, not that you're intolerant of their behavior. So to kind of pacify your responsibility biblically to communicate clearly what the Bible says and to plead with him to be reconciled with God and to repent and to make the assumption that they already know where I stand so it would actually be not helpful to communicate it once again. I think that's sometimes used as a catalyst for um, dodging biblical responsibility rather than um, actually communicating in love. And, And truthfully, to love someone is hard. So loving people shouldn't feel easy. Um, just like any relationship, it requires intentionality and sometimes pain and hurt. And to say, hey, bro, I love you. Here's what the Bible says. I believe this. I believe you need to repent. I believe that the path you're on um, is destined for punishment. I believe that this is dishonoring to God. Romans 1.24 says it's dishonoring to your body. It's not for human flourishing. 
and to love you means I communicate these things clearly with you. And that might be the end of the relationship, but your job is never to, to maintain a relationship. It's always to be a faithful ambassador. And what faithful ambassadors do is they speak the words prescribed to them by their king. I think sometimes Christians are so worried that they're going to burn a bridge. That's not up to you. That's up to God. What's up to you is communicating the message given to you by God and to do that with love and compassion. And there is a wisdom in how we go about that. But you don't need to always worry about, well, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen here? That's the the Lord, um, I think. Yeah, no, I think that was excellent. The only thing I would add is I think sometimes um, in that conversation there is this, um, you think you're better than me or you, you think somehow you're, you're smarter and just being crystal clear that, that it's God's design and we're all held underneath God's design, God's truth. He's the lawgiver. He's the creator. And we're all subject to his authority, right? his kingship. Uh, and being crystal clear on that, it's not your interpretation. It's not your, uh, your calling them out and, and what you think. It's what Scripture clearly teaches. I think that distinction is important. The other part I build on that I like what Johnny said is, is that don't assume they know your position. Um, because if you look back what Johnny said yesterday, this is key, is that by you hanging out with them, they're assuming you're agreeing with their decisions because they no longer divorce your actions from your identity, right? Johnny laid that out clearly, that your actions and identity go together. So that by you participating in the relationship, you're kind of, they're assuming you now agree with their decisions they're making in life. Um, because if you were to disagree, you wouldn't hang out with them because it'd be a rejection of who they are. Uh, so I think that's very key. That's a big shift. You used to be able to disagree with someone's choices, but still love the person or care about the person. Now the two are synonymous. Uh, so I think what Johnny said is very important to be crystal clear. Um, that's not what you see in Scripture and your, your desire is for them to be reconciled with God um, through the sin they're committing. And that the best thing for them is to be made right with God. That's the best thing they could ever do is to be right with God in that relationship. Um, or if they're not a Christian, that they, they would come to know Him and no longer be an enemy, become a child. And so I think that just the clarity and the specificity of what Johnny mentioned is so important because we can no longer make the assumption um, that just because we go to church, they know where I stand. Um, that assumption is not safe anymore, and I think it's important uh, that you are clear. But like, like, like we've been talking about, out of love and out of concern for who they are, not out of superiority, not out of condemnation, not out of you know, Bible bashing, but just a genuine care for the person. And I think if, if you can maintain your position that you actually care about who they are, uh, those words, even if disagreed, I think at least plant seeds instead of out of anger and judgment, um, but just a heartfelt plea that this is what God has designed and you want to be faithful ends up being better, I, I, I think. That's great. So this next one's not really stated as a question, but I think you guys will see the question in there. It says, um, Paul condemned homosexuality but he also told women to wear head coverings, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Uh, this is something called the, the head covering movement. It started in 1992, and the founder of the movement no longer even agrees with her founding position. She now believes universally the Bible condemns homosexuality. 
So if you type in the head covering movement, this is like one of the like main rebuttals that people give. And at this point, like the people that even began the movement don't agree with their own position, just like Charles Darwin disagreed with evolution um, and thought it was damaging to the human culture and human flourishing. So basically in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul outlines that the woman should have her head covered in church and that it was uh, not permissible. One of the things to understand culturally at that point is that prostitutes and lesbians were marked by buzzed heads and not by hair. So he was making an argument from a cultural perspective. And, and so what we do, and we really condense the, the understanding of it, to, there's two different types of arguments. There's the cultural argument that Paul's make, and then he makes arguments that are rooted in the created order. When Paul talks about homosexuality, he always roots it in the created order, not in a cultural mandate. Created order, not a cultural mandate. So in Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6 or 2 Timothy 1, all of those different conversations about homosexuality are rooted in God's design. What he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11 is rooted in a, in a cultural understanding that lesbians and prostitutes were those defined and exhibited by buzzed heads. And so that would be uh, something that would be totally different. But then as I mentioned, and this is why it's sometimes helpful, um, the significant amount of gay scholars today would even just laugh at that very rebuttal. Like, so, and that's part of the reason why I presented so many, like, gay scholars is because they would look at that and go, that's just them reaching. And that's why one of the, the quotes by uh, Diarmid McCulloch said that any argument that seems to prove the acceptability or make it a cultural one, he, seems, he says, seems strained and reachy meaning that you're reaching for something, and from our perspective, we would just say that that's a cultural thing that was different in Corinth at that time because of the ritual prostitution, not something that God's going to anchor in the created order. Yeah, uh, I think Johnny nailed that. I would just give you maybe a practical piece of this. You know, when I go to India, I wear a white shirt to preach because that signifies what the teacher is doing, and it signifies what's happening you could say is holy, but they ask you to do that, so it communicates the right thing, so we do that. You go to Africa, they ask the girls to, you know, dress more conservatively, and so we do that, so that it communicates the right thing in that culture, so you have that proper understanding. So I think um, cultural norms, so that you don't get mistaken categorically, is, is a lot different than what Johnny's pointing out, that homosexuality is rooted in creation, you know, Romans 1, which Johnny read, is very clear. There's the natural, there's the unnatural. And so to, to equate the two uh, would be like what you'd call like a category mistake. They don't, they don't play in the same category. One's a command, one's saying, hey, when you're here, do this so that they understand it properly. They understand authority. You look at that 1 Corinthians 11 passage, he's really trying to communicate, hey, the head is God, the head of man is Christ, and the head of the wife is the husband. Therefore, reflect and dress in a way that reflects the headship of God, the headship of Christ, right, and the headship of your husband. And to, to do that, this is how you would present it. And so that's what I think just happening in that passage is simply trying to help us come to that reality. Um, that's, yeah. that's the practical well, piece. One thing, too, that like is worth understanding is even yesterday, or no, it's like a week ago, yesterday is a euphemism for any time in the last two years. <laughs> um, recently, 
I was watching this video, and it's this like spicy redheaded girl that's studying theology, and she's she kind of does these one-minute TikTok videos, and she says kind of that same thing. Paul condemns homosexuality, and then she goes, but, and then the video goes, bong, 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 but he also tells you not to have a dog in Leviticus. So how does that make sense? And she basically makes stupid everything that the historical Christian church has grounded their faith upon. And this is also where an understanding of hermeneutics, which is a word that maybe you've heard and don't know necessarily what it means, is really helpful. Hermeneutics is the tool by which we interpret scripture. And an understanding of hermeneutics is going to be essential for you as you move forward because people don't just deny that the Bible says things. What they do is they twist the meaning, and that's exactly what Satan has done since the very beginning. The first question posed in all of creation is what? Did God really say? Before that, there were only answers. And the first question that's used is an attack upon the Bible, and it's not God didn't say it's, did God really say? I think you've got this wrong. You've confused him. You've got it all wrong. That's why hermeneutics, which is the way we interpret and read the scripture, we have to have a unified sense in it because what's happening at these different universities and Christian colleges and uh, seminaries is that they're using different hermeneutical principles than the last 2,000 years of church history. And they're trying to use scripture to justify certain things or by saying, well, hey, in the Bible also... Uh, the woman that was on her period was kicked outside the camp anymore. We don't do that. If I'm on my period, I go to church. Are we also supposed to do that anymore? If I'm on, and they're just real crass about it. And Christians just go, ah, I don't know how to respond to that. And that's why understanding the scripture and understanding hermeneutics, how we know what applies today, what doesn't apply today, is really helpful. And there are also really great resources for that online. So this is, a, this is actually a written question, but you mentioned it yesterday, so I wanted to circle back to it. Could you clarify the issue of intersex? Yeah, um, intersex is a biological condition um, where someone is born with anatomical differences or anatomical abnormalities. So, and that is specifically, typically referring to their genitalia, where it's not clear what they are at birth from an anatomical organ perspective and even sometimes in very rare situations very rare is also like less than one percent of the one percent there are some sort of chromosomal abnormalities and typically and typically in almost all cases you'll be able to do a study at that point and do hormonal therapy from the time they're young based on what their obvious gender is or like their perceived gender is that would push them hormonally into what they appear to be because someone, and I feel like I have to answer this uh, transparently, so hypothetically, Matthew 19, Jesus says some are made eunuchs and some are born eunuchs. A eunuch is someone that was castrated for the purposes of serving the king because he would typically, even in the book of Daniel or in Hezekiah, we would think culturally that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they worked in the king's court, they were castrated when they got to Babylon because they would typically be in charge of the king's harem, and he wouldn't want anyone that had the ability with reproductive organs to be able to have sex with them. So they were castrated. Jesus says some are made eunuchs, and then he says and some are born eunuchs, but he made them male and female. Jesus even provides the allowance of intersex and the abnormalities of that. That's not something that we should be surprised at because of the fall, just like people are born with Down syndrome and different 
disabilities, but typically through hormonal therapy, it'll help them at, at a very young age to be able to identify with that. There's a number of stories in Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, where she even explains that at times people, and there's, there's been two cases that have been like Supreme Court cases or really main studies where people feel like their hormonal therapy was re rejected and they were raised in the wrong gender and they've gone back and seen what the DNA was at their birth and realized that the doctors made a mistake. And uh, that was, that'd be like one of the main things where... Um, the couple would say, we want a girl, we want a girl, but then it would look like her chromosomes and from her organ perspective, she was a guy, um, and they ended up pushing her to a girl. She ended up at 19, uh, having uh, the hormonal therapy to go back to what she was. She's married now, um, or got married to, she's a guy, got married to a woman. Um, and so intersex is, is kind of like one of the things, though, that's used, and this is, I think maybe I forgot to say this, the transgender community uses intersex as a football to kick the ball down the field to advance their political purposes, but it's a self-contradicting argument because the transgender community doesn't believe biological sex even exists. And so they're using intersex as part of their argument, which is cutting themselves off at the knees because it makes no sense for you to say, on the one hand, I believe sex is a social construct, and then to use intersex, which is a biological reality that is a condition to advance your political trans agenda. So it's a self-contradicting argument. Intersex is a reality. It's less than 1% of babies. Uh, it's very rare. And in 99% of those cases, it's so obvious what the, the sex of the baby is that through simple hormonal therapy, they live a relatively normal life. There could be people in here that that's been the reality and you've never even known it. So that's, that's the truth. So a lot of people, a significant amount of people, it'd be like you being born with a third nipple to be transparent and having that surgery removed when you're a baby and your parents not telling you. And it's like, well, I didn't know it. There's just a little scar there. I thought it was a birthmark. Many cases, that's where intersex people are. But then in some extreme cases, it becomes something where they go back and reflect on it. People have got it wrong. And those cases are so rare that we know of the two most prominent ones in U.S. history. I'm staying in my lane. You did, you did great. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right, um, and that, that it is a, a really hard, sad thing, and yeah. we should expect that in a fallen world. Just like my uh, cousin, just uh, you know, just yeah, I mean, figuring out how to raise a Down syndrome child. Um, things are not perfect. The world is not how it's supposed to be. Romans eight says that we are subjected to futility, and the entire creation is groaning for it to be restored to how God made it. And so, even with homosexuality, let's say the question was asked: Was God born gay, or was I born gay? No, sin distorted my identity. God didn't make me this way. So you can even have dispositions from a young age where you're attracted to the opposite sex. God did not make anybody gay. Sin distorts perceptions, and you can even have a disposition towards someone just like if you were a child of alcoholics, you might have a disposition towards that. I might have a disposition towards lust or another person towards anger or greed. That doesn't mean God made you that way. It means sin distorted you, and one day God will restore you. Awesome. Okay, next question. How do I respond to people who call me homophobic because I am a Christian? Um, well, I, I think just by breaking down the terms, homo is same sex, phobic is afraid. So I just, I'm not afraid of anything. Uh, I'm afraid of, I'm fearing 
God-fearing. So just, I mean, first of all, to say you're homophobic is, is using a term that doesn't identify with my convictions at all. I don't look at a homosexual and go, I am afraid of you. Phobia is what, that's where arachnophobia comes from. I am afraid of spiders or afraid of heights. I'm not afraid of homosexuals. I love them. And that's why I plead with them to know the truth and repent to it. So as far as the truth seeming offensive, and this is also in the world that you live in, people don't use the terms right or wrong. There is no right or wrong. I was doing an interview recently with someone, and this is kind of, uh, this is funny. It's, I was doing something, they take two people on opposite sides of the spectrum, like a transgender pastor and a straight conservative pastor. They take, uh, you know, a social justice warrior and someone that abides by like conservative Christian values. And I was partnered to do a news panel, a three-hour moderated discussion with another pastor's kid who had deconstructed. I'm a pastor's kid. I've been grown up, I've grown up in that environment. So I was doing a discussion a couple months ago with someone that was a pastor's kid that had gone to a Christian school, walked away from the faith. And I asked him, he just says he doesn't believe in God. So I said, well, do you believe in morality? And he says, I don't believe in morality at all. Um, I don't believe in morality at all. And I said, I want to paint a picture for you. And I said, let's pretend I walk into a gas station and blow a guy's brains out. Would you still not say that's wrong? And he looked at me and said, well, why did you do it? And I said, for the love and pleasure of killing. And he goes, <laughs> it's on camera. And he says, I can't say that's wrong. I can say that's unproductive to the society that we live in. I said, okay, okay, what if I take my Ram 1500 and see a group of kids walking home from school and just run them over? Is that wrong? Why did you do it? I hate kids. Is it wrong? He looks at me and says, I cannot say that's wrong. I can say it's not productive to the society that we live in, and society would deem it unproductive and unhelpful. What's interesting is once you erase intelligent design, you have no grounds for morality. So when you have no grounds for morality, and this is what I talked about yesterday, and this is what's helpful for us to understand, when you have no grounds for morality, you can't use words such as right or wrong. So in the classroom, let's say, people use the terms, I am offended, or I don't feel what? Safe. Because you have no right or wrong. You have, I'm offended, I'm offended, or that's hurtful. Because hurtful is not objective, it's subjective. And if you're not familiar with the terms objective and subjective, um, this is objective. This is floor. Subjective is, I feel like I'm 6'4", even though I'm six foot, 5'11 and 3 quarters, if I'm honest, okay? <laughs> That's subjective. But when you have no objective grounding, every feeling is, and every, every kind of de definition of morality is going to be based on subjective articulations, which is why people use the words offended, hurt, and safe. What's interesting is that the people that use the term homophobic, they present it to you in a way where it's wrong, first of all, so they don't line up with their own standard of morality. There is no more morality if you deny God, which is why Hitler killed six million Jews, because what, what, why is that bad? I just, I want to do away with them. They're social pariahs, which is, that was less than a hundred years ago and could happen again, especially when you take away the reality of intelligent design. 
So morality has to first be understood because they think that's wrong and then they'll back themselves into a corner where it becomes actually something that you go, well, then you're afraid of me? I'm not afraid of you. And part of it is because people that hate truth, they use tactics um, to basically try to defend themselves. And, And what's interesting is that when you, and then we talked about this yesterday, their homosexuality or their transgenderism is no longer a behavioral pattern it is their identity. And so when you don't accept my identity and affirm and applaud it, what you're actually doing is you're rejecting who I am as a person. And homophobia has just become this umbrella term that encompasses that. But I would just always break it down to its simplest part. I'm not afraid of you. I love you. And because I love you, I'm pointing you to something that's true. And then they'll respond like Pontius Pilate and Pontius's question has echoed down the halls of eternity. What is truth. And uh, in that environment, it's a zero-sum game to a point, so we have to establish some framework for objective reality, um, which is why Christians need to understand Genesis. Yeah, I think what, what Johnny did there is really important. You have to constantly define terms, um, and I think there, there is an assumption um, that if you disagree with the choice, that you hate the person. Here's an example for you. I, I met with a couple and um, they assumed I hated their son um, because he, he had come out uh, as a homosexual and that um, because I hated their son, they were mad at me. And I said, when did I ever say I hated your son? And he said, well, you said it was wrong. I said, again, when did I say I hated your son? Well, you said it was wrong. That's all I could go to. And I said, just to make it clear, I love your son. I'd have lunch with your son. I would, I would hang out with him. Uh, I said, but just like any other person, if a guy's committing adultery or he's looking at pornography, I'm going to tell them God says no. But that doesn't mean I don't love, I don't care, and I'm not going to try to plead with them to be right with what God said. And so I think walking through that with someone is important because the assumption is if you disagree with me, you hate me. And it's very powerful when you can look them in the eye and say, no, I actually love you. I care about you. Um, and and you, you might not agree with me, but God says this, I care about it, and I care that you understand it. Uh, that can be a very powerful opportunity for you to twist the narrative, because uh, the other part of this is, is that they have to, well, they don't have to, but they should respect your feelings, right? Because feelings become the, the ruler of, of the conversation. And you're saying, in my feelings, I love you. I care about you. Um, but I just disagree with what you're doing because God has said no. So I think breaking down the terms, but also um, going a complete opposite, I actually don't hate you, I actually care about you. I think those can be very powerful words because in our, in our conversation, the whole thing de-escalated because it came off as a war because there's, there's this perceived hatred towards their kid. And once we solved that, all of a sudden, we're able to talk about, well, what did Jesus say about it? And what does it mean in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy and Old Testament? And we actually had a productive conversation and we're able to keep talking after that. Um, But when they stood on the assumption that I hated their kid, it was like, well, let's go to war. And so I think being able to de-escalate that through, and I actually care deeply about your son. Um, We're actually to move through it. But you have to define the terms. And and the way Johnny broke it down was, was great. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Okay, this one's kind of like two questions in one. Um, 
Why is it that some children are born with tendencies of the opposite sex? Uh, most of them later come out as gay or lesbian. Um, how many or what is the percentage of men or women that become gay or lesbian as a result of being sexually assaulted as a young child? Um, as far as the percentage of that which is a byproduct of abuse, I, I don't know the exact percentage. I know that it is an effect for sure. Um, just like uh, abusers sometimes become abusers. Um, so I don't know the direct percentage, but I know there's correlation. Um, and I think also we have to always um, define terms in regards to abuse. I've been at Hume Lake where students get punched in the face by their dad, and I'm at Hume Lake where students say they're abused by their dad because they've said you won't amount to anything. So like sexual abuse, which would be like invasive molestation, um, that definitely has like an effect on that, but that's where I, I, I think sometimes the word abuse is sometimes too general of an umbrella term to actually know what we're talking about. So that's why I use physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse. So I'm assuming we're talking about sexually abused, um, molestation by a parent, an uncle, things like that. I know there's correlation, but as far as the percentage, I don't know. You said that, I think in the question, it said that like most of them end up coming out as gay as far as people that have like a disposition to that since they were young. Is that what you said? That's, yeah, it seemed like I was kind of assuming that. Yeah, that's actually like a, a fallacy. Um, most people don't come out as gay after having that type of thought. Um, the American Pediatric Society, also just, just so you know, 98% of boys who think they're girls after puberty end up living like a boy. 98%. And 82% of girls that think they're boys after puberty end up living in alignment with their biological sex. And that's because they want to. When I, I had five sisters growing up, and I used to play house with them because I loved my sisters. Today, that they would have told me that I was a girl. But no, I love my sisters. And after puberty, all they wanted to do was hoop it up with my dad. And I don't know, like, I mean, I like Brian Erlacher. So I, I think that, <laughs> that's a football player. Um, go Bears. Um, oh, and he's old now. Yeah, he's old. He's old. He got hair restoration yeah. too. So the, um, moving on. But I, I think just to understand that the happiest people that you know that maybe even struggled with some sort of like trans ideology or transgender thoughts or gender dysphoria when they're young, 98% of dudes, according to the American Pediatric Society, and I think it's 80% of girls post-puberty, on average 12 years old, end up living in alignment with their biological sex and living a healthy life. The, the statistic that we should actually talk about is that those who actually um, change their gender are amongst the highest suicide rate ever, even in a society where they're not just recognized, they're applauded, they're on every single commercial. In fact, if you want to start a new show and go present the pilot to NBC, it better include a trans activist, and it better include a homosexual. You have no storyline if not one of them is gay, one of them is trans, and they're not living together, and they're not living sexually a promiscuous lifestyle. So they are applauded on every front. I mean, the Super Bowl show next year, it's going to have some sort of sex ideologies. Um, the, Taylor Swift is going to be pressured into doing something that affirms them. So but still, with all of that, they end up living the most depressed, suicidally uh, magnified lifestyle. So can you have a disposition towards something when you're young? Absolutely. Can at four years old, you end up feeling like, 
uh, certain way. Yeah, kind of, but I thought girls had cooties until I was 12. So I think even that's like a culturally perpetuated idea that's sometimes not associated with reality. The difficult part now is that in like some fifth grade classrooms, they're holding up pictures of Brad Pitt as Troy asking guys if they think that he's good looking. I mean, I'm a dude, I'm a straight as an arrow, I know Brad Pitt is good looking, okay? <laughs> but what happens now is that if a kid goes, yeah, their teacher's going to tell them, well, you're gay. Because affirming someone else's physical attraction is now being perceived to mean you're gay um, or you're a homosexual and you've always been that way. And that's where the conversation even about protecting your kids from the world is a valid conversation because you have to be responsible and you have to know what's happening in the classroom. So as far as having a disposition towards a certain sin or a certain tendency, for sure. I, I stole a Slurpee when I was 7-Eleven and I actually stro- I struggled with stealing. Um, but that, there's no difference. Just because it's a disposition doesn't mean that God provides you an allowance for the continuance of that and that's why the anchor of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We are not to be liberated by our desires. We're to control our desires that are in misalignment with God's Word, and that's why we rely on the Spirit of God. We are not subject to our feelings. We're subject to the Word of God. And when those things are at odds, we always odd. We always side with God's Word, not our feelings. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Maybe just to put a little bit of a, uh, a story to it for you. I think one, just because a kid feels it doesn't make it true and doesn't mean parents should champion it. Um, kids are kids, meaning they don't, they don't know. They might have strong feelings, but it doesn't mean those feelings are, like what Johnny said, a reality. Just being a high school pastor, it wasn't uncommon maybe for um, a girl that wasn't seen as pretty in high school, who wasn't seen as popular. She would, she would come and talk to me and say, I think maybe I'm a lesbian. And I would say, well, why do you say that? And she said, because boys don't like me. Maybe that's because I'm supposed to like girls. And I would have to tell her, no, boys are stupid. They don't know you're pretty yet. Once they get older, they'll realize there's a, an amazing person in there and they will judge who you are and these kind of you know, popular identities will go away and you just need to wait that out. And just because boys aren't banging on your door doesn't mean you're a lesbian. And it was as simple as that. But in her culture, that connection was being made for her. Oh, it's because you're supposed to like girls because there's no boys knocking on your door. Um, so the, the mind of a kid is very exploratory. And as a parent, you need to be able to tell your kid, like, no, that, that's not what that means. That is an incorrect conclusion. Um, it doesn't correspond with God's design or reality. Um, the, the, the other part, I think, is where there is a cultural construct is, is that men uh, are defined as, you know, people who take axe and eat metal. You know what I mean? Like I'm over-exaggerating. Um, but you look at a biblical picture of a man in the Bible, it's one who loves the Lord, who fears the Lord, who raises his family according to God's word, who would die for his wife. And so there's definitely some protective, instinctive things there, um, but it doesn't mean that they're a linebacker that loves to smash their head into a wall. And just because that's not you doesn't mean you're not masculine. Um, and so looking through masculinity and even femininity through the lens of what does the Bible say instead of categorizing, oh, they must be gay because they, you know, like to play house. And it's like, no, Johnny loved his sisters, you know, and then he ended up loving basketball, which is awesome. 
Um, so you, you look through that, but you've got to give kids that, that, that trajectory. They're going to think things and feel things. And don't let the world tell them what that means. Um, you have to tell them what that means and how to process that and how to think about that through what the Bible says. And so I, I think, and just my last point would be is that it's very important just because you're born that way, let's say, um, doesn't make it okay. We're all born sinners. And God says no to all of us on something. And just because we have a natural propensity to want to do that doesn't make it okay. Uh, and so the, just because it's sexual doesn't make it special. God says no. God says this is right, this is wrong. And we all have to adhere to what God says. Um, and we're sinful and we don't want to. And so that applies to everybody. When you specialize it, it acts as if it's somehow different from all other sin. When actually it's not. God said no and we can't do it. He loves us. It's what's best for us, I guess how I'd put it. Uh, yeah, one, one thing to add to that is regar- in regards to I was born this way. I was trying to find the stat because Nancy Piercy conducted a study that she's uh, and references it in her book and I was trying to find it. 81% of people who come out as homosexuals change their sexual identity label at least once to hetero or bi or queer. So the same people that are saying I was born this way, 80, 80% of them are going to change their label at some point in their life. So that's an incongruence and it's a self-contradicting statement. 80% of them are going to say, well, they're all going to say I was born this way, but then they're also going to say, well, I'm not that way anymore. You can't be born a certain way and then change it the next year. That's why so many people today are saying, I'm just queer. I don't know what I am. Sometimes I'm gay, sometimes I'm bi, sometimes I'm transgender. Don't put me in a box. And so that argument is going to be irrelevant moving forward because you can't even also say I was born this way if biological sex is a social construct. So every argument that they're using is self-contradicting. If they're not born this way, first of all, they say they're born this way, but the body doesn't matter, biology doesn't matter, and so they get rid of that, and then they're all going to change it, you know, four-fifths of them uh, in the next, uh, you know, few years. So it's just a backwards argument. I think what Eric said is also a good point about the macho-ness of masculinity. I would be mindful, especially in, like, uh, popular Christian evangelicalism, that right now, as is always the case, culturally speaking, people are prone to spectrum swinging, meaning that if culture's doing this, we need to do this. I grew up in a product of the love of God. Everything was about the love of God. The love of God, Jesus loves you billboards. And God's love was elevated above his other attributes at the diminishment of his holiness and his justice. I believe at times I grew up in an environment where people swung back to the other side of the spectrum. I had no problem growing up understanding that God was holy. I think it was really tough for me to believe that God was love because in a culture that promoted his love at the expense of his other attributes, people went, "Uh uh-uh, boom, he's holy and just and you will tremble before him. It's dangerous to spectrum swing. And you use the word balance, I use the word biblical. God is a God of profound holiness and a God of profound love. We're to abide in that love and every growth in grace is a result of that love. In regards to masculinity, we could use that same formula in a growing effeminate culture we don't want to swing to the other side of the pendulum and go son this 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 you're not in theater anymore that's dumb and gay here's what we're doing that's dangerous and that's real those are real conversations i've had in the last few weeks so there is an element where 
um, promoting a cultural masculinity is not necessarily a biblical masculinity. A biblical man is one that loves, hmm. serves, and works yeah. and honors God. I mean, if you just take the fundamental, what does it mean to be a man? You provide, you protect your family, you work hard, Proverbs, diligence, you're pure, um, you're self-serving, uh, you're giving. Um, it doesn't mean necessarily that you wear flannels. Hmm. And I think that has to be, um, even though I like flannels, that has to be understood um, in a culture that is growing increasingly feminine, uh, which is actually a difficult thing for feminists themselves because <laughs> um, they, they don't know who to be anymore. Could you comment real quick? This is coming from me. Uh, no. Oh, well, okay. in that case, I'll take you outside later. You're going to have to write uh, it down and put it in the box. <laughs> I know. Could you comment more on... Um, you're, you're going really fast yesterday, which I appreciate. You had a lot of information. But can you comment more on uh, the nature versus... Um, nurture argument and how that relates to Sigmund Freud's kind of redefining our sexuality? Well, the nature versus nurture argument is basically do is something inherent to your DNA or is that a product of the environment that you grew up in? Just like the, the example, there's a study on a, on a real girl in Russia that was raised by wolves. I mean, we joke about it. My dad used to tell me I was raised by wolves. Because I came out of the womb really hairy. I had like a full head of hair. And you say you were raised by wolves. And recently there was a, a study done where this girl in Russia, since she was an infant, was actually raised by wolves. She's now like in therapy for like, she did therapy for like eight years. But she walked on all fours uh, for her entire life. She has significant scoliosis. They've done multiple surgeries. Now she wears clothes and she's learning Russian language. The idea there is she's not by nature born a wolf. She's a human. You know, she's a human being. But by nurture, she developed tendencies that were outside of maybe her biological design. And so that's the difference between nature and nurture. She's not a wolf, but she was in some ways raised as a wolf. Um, I'm forgetting her name, but it's good. Um, you can watch it on YouTube. Um, it's an interesting story. Uh, so the difference between that and Sigmund Freud, I mean, there's some um, kind of similarity, but Sigmund Freud just said that our, we are essentially sexual creatures, and the goal of personhood is hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, and humans are most happy when they are most sexual. And because the goal of human personhood is hedonism, and because we're most happy when we're sexual, then our, and our entire identity is sexual, and we must look at ourselves not behaviorally as sexual, but as an identity. We are sexual creatures. And this is where Charles Taylor got the idea of expressive individualism, that if at our identity, at our core, we're sexual beings, then the duty of life, and when we are most authentic, is when we express internally what we feel outside and tell the world, I'm, you know, I'm the gayest person you've ever met. Which is part, I mean, think about it. That's where they have gay pride parade. It's not enough to say you're gay. You have to show up wearing the most homosexual outfit you can think of to show everyone, I'm not just kind of one foot in on this. I'm all chips in. I'm the gayest person you know. And, and I don't mean that in a mocking way. I'm saying that in a literal sense, gay pride parade is we are going to act as gay as possible. Uh, drag shows, whatever, you name it. 
And that is the idea that we are at our core sexual, and when we express those internal desires, it's called expressive individualism, that's when we are actually being most authentic. And when we're most authentic, even though the world might reject us, we are at peace. So in a, in a tumultuous world, we're most at peace when we're just, let's rage. Um, so that's, that's the Sigmund Freud conversation. So what do they mean by like the, the nature specifically, like they might say like a gay gene, like is there anything such? There is such? no biological evidence that there is a gay gene. Um, the genetic code, DNA structure, guys are born XY, girls are born XX, and there's no biological like irrefutable evidence that there is anybody that's born gay. Um, from like a psychological disposition, you can, but from a chromosomal disposition, there is no like evidence. And that's why they've done away with that. They don't even use that argument anymore. They don't even use the, I was born this way. Like very rarely will you hear that argument because biology doesn't matter. And so that's why even tracing the Darwin process just makes you, makes you go, even, that's the same thing I said with abortion. Don't you know it's a human baby? You know, it's a human baby. Look at it. It has a heartbeat. They used to say at the pregnancy centers, and this is still true, that when a woman or a girl that's about to abort her baby sees the beating of a heart, that it's a different ballgame. Now, it doesn't matter. It might be a body, but it's not a person. And that's because biology is irrelevant, where there's no human dignity, no design, no purpose, no value. And so even what you're saying as far as the gay gene, that doesn't matter as much to them anymore because they're just being who they want to be on the inside. And if my biology doesn't agree, then I just need to align my body, my feelings, and my sexuality with my mind because no longer does the, the, the body have authority over the mind. The mind has authority over the body. And so, but there is no evidence for a gay gene and it doesn't matter anymore because you can be whoever you want on the inside because the mind wins, the mind wins, the mind wins. You are who you think you are. As I think I am, I am. That's Rene Descartes. And he influenced all of the train of thought that would follow from him. Whatever I think I am, I am. And if you disagree with me, screw you. Any comments? Well, I think maybe the simple answer would be that Ephesians 2 says we're by nature children of wrath, right? And apart from God's grace, we don't remove that nature. And so uh, we're, we're born sinful, and without the grace of God, we will not undo that nature, right? And so there's two camps, right? Child of God, child of wrath. The Bible tells us continually, die to yourself, have a sober mind, right? Take off the old, put on the new. And so the scripture is antithetical to my feelings are true, right? And it literally tells us to die, Right? and submit to Christ, and, and to submit to God's Word, and to walk right? Walk in our new identity as a child of God. That's all of Ephesians, telling you how to walk in this identity as an adopted child, how to live by grace, how to be a part of the church, how to be married, how to um, be a parent, how to equip and arm yourself to go into the world. And so I think when, when you take a nurture argument, it just, it goes against Scripture. It says we're born sinful, plain and simple. We want to sin. That's our natural desire. Um, because people want to start with, you know, we're born basically good and then we're taught to be bad. And the Scripture teaches the opposite. We're born bad. We're bad. We're sinful, right? Romans 3, none are good. No, not one. 
So I think that gets lost. And like what Johnny's been trying to say, go back to your Bible. It's very it's simple. It's straightforward. Um, spend more time trying to submit to it than trying to prove it wrong. That, the, the other thing, in just in regards to like the born this way type of thing, like the Lady Gaga song like became like very popular in that way, like I, I've been born this way. And this is where obviously on a quest of brevity, I never want to... I never want to possess like the lack of compassion I would have to a person that would asking me these things like personally. Um, and so like the facts that I'm giving are, are different than the way that I would approach this if this was like a one-on-one conversation. Good so I think that has to be like said, like if someone says like, I feel like I was born this way, I'm not going to respond with, oh yeah, the American Pediatric Society says there's no, ref-, you know, like um, that's not the way to to talk to someone. I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm trying to win people to Christ. And I think that needs to be understood. Uh, One of the other things that I would say is, uh, with that in mind of being born a certain way, uh, even, you know, homosexuals, and and this is maybe helpful, in an increasing fashion, the the ones that are a part of the 19% that don't switch their sexual label to either bi or queer, you know, because I mentioned that 80% of them that are homosexual also at some point identify as bi. Maybe I'm into woman. Wait, maybe I'm into both. Um, The the 19% have have come up with a new category, which is why in a recent interview with Beckett Cook, they talk about that I was an exclusively gay man, and they add the word exclusively homosexual man. Because that is now providing like, oh, he was gay and only gay. And now that they're trying to use that term to kind of um, reference the rarity of the exclusivity of homosexual affection. Awesome. Okay. We probably have time for a couple more questions. So how should I address my daughter seeing kids at school dress as the opposite sex? Um, well, I think uh, this is, and this is part of why I wanted to say that, like, I'm, I'm maybe approaching the conversation different than I would if I was just preaching at a church on, like, a Sunday morning. If I'm walking through 1 Corinthians, I'm going to make it real clear, hey, this is our church people. Here's what 1 Corinthians 6 says. It's a perversity. It's, it's an abomination to God. Um, I think one of the things that you do with your children from a, a, a biblical perspective, and this is why it says in Deuteronomy 6, that you, you bind them on your heart, on your head. You, when you wake, they will talk to you. When you go to sleep, they watch over you. You develop your, your whole framework for being a parent. And I don't have older kids yet, but I understand how biblically the Bible prescribes what parenting is. It's to give them a biblical worldview. And you give them a biblical worldview by grounding their thinking in God's design, God's order, and God's word amongst God's people. And they used to say, like, it takes a a village to raise a kid and I think there's like some truth in that where um, that's why like community is also so essential for even beginning to process these things but when you that's why I said even with the specificity of the questions that you ask that matters how is your day doesn't necessarily unless you have a very unique relationship I would say my dad is one of my best friends but there are certain things I didn't I when when um, there's certain things that you only respond to when a specific question is asked and so I would begin to ask specific questions. What did you see today? Anything abnormal? Did you see someone dressed a certain way? Did you have any developing thoughts? You want your children to communicate pre-processed information, not mm-hmm. post-processed information. I mean pre-processed, meaning that they haven't fully thought about it, 
but they're still thinking about it and they don't know what they think about it. That's where parenting needs to interject, not when they go, I've been thinking about this for the last three months and I think this. At that point, it's too late. That's, I always use that term with long-distance relationships. Part of the reason why long-distance dating is, t- is tough is because you FaceTime every other day and you're communicating post-processed information. This happened and here's what I thought about it. That's so different than in a dating relationship where you go to a dinner with a family and you leave and you're in the car and go, hey, what did, they, what did you think about that? And that's where even hanging out with your kids is helpful. If I'm a, kid, if I'm a dad, I'm coaching every single team. Right, because I get to process things that my child just saw, and I get to walk through that thinking with them. If you don't coach their teams, coach their school, or coach, you know, like if you're just divorced from their life completely, then I don't know how you're asking them questions in the moment as well. So I think that there has to be a level of like, I'm with my kids when they're exposed to something, or you're going to have to be very intentional. Additionally, just go, what happened at school? How do we think through that? Well, it says in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that a man that dresses up as a woman, which we would call a transvestite, is an abomination to God because God not just so clearly cares about marriage, God is passionate, raging passionate about the feminine-masculine divide. And that's why it says, nor the effeminate will inherit the kingdom of God because it's not just this passive partner in a homosexual relationship. God wants men to be men and he wants women to be women and that's a biblical prescription. And so part of that comes into modeling, that's where moms need to model what it looks like to be a woman. So all of these are like individual lectures in of their own. But I would just say intentional questions, healthy modeling, and coach your kids' teams or something like that. Take them camping and take their friends. You want to know what your kids are talking about. And if your life is just, hey, how was your day? And then on Saturday, let's go like get donuts in the morning. And then I'm going to do, my, I'm going to do bills while you go hang out at Billy's. We're done for. So, yeah, I, I think a, a part of that, all good stuff, is there's, there's simple things you can tell your kid. Like um, when they're in the bathroom line and they see a kid that's in the wrong line, don't stare at that kid, right? Don't, don't do things that further ostracize or make it worse. Um, don't, don't condemn, don't call names, don't gossip. Don't whisper under your breath about that kid. Keep, that, keep those thoughts to yourself. Come home. We'll talk about that. We'll unpack that. We'll see what, like Johnny said, what does God say about this? You'll read through those passages um, and, and affirm to them that it is crazy. Don't try to normalize it. it. That is crazy. And how do we handle crazy? And how do we approach that? And what would you say if you ever got in a conversation with that person? How would you, what kind of questions would you ask them? How would you treat them like a person? Um, In hopes that one day, if you were able to have a a conversation, you could share Christ with them because you've been kind to them. You've been um, nice. You haven't gossiped about them. You haven't made them, you know, the point of all your jokes so that you actually can have a conversation if, if it's ever afforded to you. I think those kind of, just small things are important. Um, because sometimes Christian kids, they see it and they freak out and they don't know what to do and they end up making a scene or, you know, they melt down. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying those are the kind of things you can prep your kid for. Okay, when you go to school, if you see this, what would you do? What would you say? Um, if, if a kid yelled a slander, you know, what would you do? Would you laugh? How would you respond? And it's like what Johnny said, you're intentionally preparing them for these weird, unique, awkward moments that they're now having in first, second, third, fourth grade. 
um, so that they're not trying to process it, like what Johnny said, for the first time without ever talking to you about it. And, you know, a lot of times if you try to talk to your kid, they might not want to, but it's better you plant a seed than allow them to maybe figure it out on the fly. There's some things you can't avoid that they're just going to happen that you didn't get to talk about, but, but be proactive in, in helping them um, in those situations. Yeah, I, I think, like, your kids need to know that they can talk to you about sex. Yeah. Like, I don't know how, like, clearly that should be stated. 11 years old, 10 and a half is the average age a kid is exposed to pornography. Um, they're learning sex from the world, and if you don't teach them, Google will. YouTube will. And so... To kind of like go like, ah, I don't want to provoke curiosity. Listen, no matter what environment they're in, you can't protect them from the world that is just a sexualized world. This is part of the thing. Like even talking with one of the students after the first session, she just said, I, I feel like so many people are saying, I'm gender fluid, I'm this, I'm that. You know that there are fifth graders that are identifying themselves as bisexual that have never had sex. So it's not even what they're doing, it's who they are, and they've heard it from their parents, and they're going to interact with some third grader in a bathroom that says they're bisexual, and they've never had sex. I mean, yeah, now increasingly so, they're learning in elementary school. You, don't, you can be a total virgin, but just decide what you want to be sexually. And so I just, you need to have those conversations with your students and with your children, and if you're a student in here that doesn't have that type of relationship, if you're a dude and doesn't have that relationship with the dad, that's why the church is the family of God. I would say, get a spiritual dad ASAP yesterday. Like, there's yeah. a bunch of dudes in here. I'm looking at Gary. Go talk to Gary. <laughs> find a spiritual dad. Uh, find a spiritual mom. You don't have a godly mom? Go find a spiritual mom and let her be the haven for your questions um, for the next 10, 15 years. There's a reason why also, and I, I think... I don't want to do rabbit trails, but I think this is worth saying. Rosaria Butterfield, she wrote a book. She's a lesbian professor at Syracuse, and she wrote a book on become, getting saved uh, after being a lesbian. And she said, when I left my lesbianism, I thought that I would arrive in the church and find that its community was strong, but I realized that my lesbian community was stronger than my Christian community. Mm. And she's a, a solid believer uh, but she just said that there is, it was an interesting dynamic that the lesbians support each other, love each other, care for each other better, sadly, than sometimes people in the church that know Jesus Christ. And so, and I think there's truth in that, that we need that. And I, you could say the same things about Mormons. Mormons are more active in their evangelism than some Christians, and we think Mormons are off. So I, I think that there has to be an understanding where if you're growing up in that environment, it would be one thing to say, yes, you know, with your family, but I'm also mindful of the many people growing up with mommies and daddies that are not the most godly. And because of that, you are in a church, and that's why Titus 2 says the older men are to train the younger men, older women are to train the younger women. That's why accountability, sexually speaking, even if it's just pornography, always, 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 100% of the time includes someone older and godlier than you. Ninth grade Bible class, I remember at a Christian school, it was basically like, did you win? Did you win? Did you look at something? I guess we all suck together. And it was just kind of this idea that we're all failures, it doesn't matter. And it was just this, this, this biblically irreconcilable idea 
that all we have to do is have each other to talk about our sin. And what that does is actually justify our sin by everyone's struggles with it. What you need to do is have someone that you're biblically fearful and ashamed to communicate that to, but know that you'll be received with love and grace and compassion. You need a spiritual dad. You need a spiritual mom. That's not an idea. It's a biblical objective. Um, and I think that's so important. And if you're, if you're an older man or godly woman in the church and you're looking for your place, uh, just, go, just start hanging out with teenagers. Come to high school ministry specifically. Yeah. Sorry, Kevin. Uh, well, thank you, thank you guys so much for, for doing this. That's pretty much all the time we have. Uh, there's lots of great questions here. I'm sorry that we couldn't get to them all. Uh, I think Johnny might be hanging out for a few more minutes if you want to sneak in a question to him. But, um, yeah, thank you so much for, for being here with us and sharing on a tough topic like this. So we Yeah, appreciate and it. I think, too, just uh, one last thing is people always say thanks for sharing on a tough topic, and I understand what you're saying. If you're a Christian... This is, it's a layup. It's tough because we live in a world that hates it. But then Jesus promised us that we would be hated. Now, the truth is offensive. We don't have to add offense to it by being jerks about it. And that's why we communicate this with compassion. It's not tough as a subject. It's tough to live out faithfully. And um, I, I'm thankful for the opportunity, thankful for you guys to be at a solid church, and um, I'm praying that we would be lights in a dying and dark world. Amen. Amen. Amen.